Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Gerard Alessandrini, who is the creator, the writer, and the director of a show you may have seen over the last 23 seasons here in New York. It's probably the longest-running show around, uh, second only probably to the Fantastics or something like that. It's called Forbidden Broadway, the latest incarnation, Forbidden Broadway Special Victims Unit. Very kind of up-to-the-moment, Gerard. Uh, yes, John. Uh, <laughs> well, I thought, you know, I, I for years I've been going to theater and thinking, seeing bad shows and thinking, is that a crime? Is that illegal, what they're doing on stage? We'll have to do a criminal version of Forbidden Broadway. So that was the idea to incorporate it into Forbidden Broadway, sort of the aspect that uh, there might be something illegal about what they're doing on stage, or some people should go to prison for what they've done. So and how did you choose your first victim for this show? Because you, you take a character who's been with us for a while and knock her off pretty quickly. Oh, and well, yeah, actually, uh, yeah, we deliberated about that. Well, we thought it was sort of a, a, a twofold joke because we thought uh, – not only uh, would it be funny to see her get shot, and also um, would it be funny, uh, we thought it would be funny for our audiences for Ben Broder because Annie has been in and out of the show so much over the years, mostly in, that we thought Forbidden Broadway audiences it would be a good joke for them. They, the lights would come up, the Annie number would start, and the returning visitors would say, like, oh, no, not again, and then we'd, <laughs> we'd do what we need to do to her. And uh, and then I took the Law & Order uh, sort of uh, milieu and put the whole show in that because... Uh, uh, Law and Order, like Forbidden Broadway, has different versions and spinoffs of the original. So this is uh, one of many editions. There have been like 15 different editions over the years. How about I'm, that? I'm yeah. reading this from Playbill. Uh, seven cast albums, and now in its 23rd, going on 24 seasons. Yeah. How did you, you get the idea in the first place to do Forbidden Broadway? Well, uh, the idea to do parody songs of Broadway shows I don't think was anything new. I think people have been writing parody songs for... Uh, show tunes for years and maybe even songs before that for centuries. So that wasn't anything new. But I thought, uh, and I had been doing it sort of for friends, you know, taking a song from a show and then changing the lyrics to actually make a critique of the show. So I sort of had a folder of that. And I was looking for some kind of nightclub act I could put together for myself and my uh, talented friends uh, that would allow us to do theater music but in a fresh way. And I thought, Oh, hey, why don't I take those Forbidden Broadway lyrics? I used to keep them in a Forbidden Broadway file and um, put that together into a show. And it quickly became um, obvious that it, made, it was a good idea for a show. You could change it. You could update it. And uh, the parody lyrics were specific to the shows they were about. They weren't just about anything. So that was sort of a, a new angle. I don't also think that spoofing theater is a new angle. I think that had been going on for uh, at least a century here in New York, too. But to take, actually take the real music from the show and do it was a sort of something new. Although I hear uh, in like 1905 there was a famous uh, parody version of The Merry Widow that ran for years with the actual music by Franz Lea that they changed the lyrics. So in a sense that was an early Forbidden Broadway. Well, well you, we do, you do use the actual music from the shows. Do you have to get permission from the, the owners of that music? Do yes, we do. We contact the publishers and, and get permission. Uh -huh. I know that uh, in parody laws are uh, have gotten loose over the years, but... Uh, but still, we have a nice rapport with the uh, not only the writers, but the publishers of the songs that we use. And they all know the show and, and love it. I guess it's kind of flattering uh, to be parodied in your show. Um, I guess so. I mean, you have to ask them, but I think so. Uh, usually the uh, numbers that come out the best, or the ones that I like the best, are from shows I actually like. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should, we should point up the fact that you were saying when the show began, you were a performer in the show. That's right. I and wanted you were writing it as a material vehicle. 
for myself as a performer, I thought, well, this would be new. Instead of, you know, inviting people to hear me sing on the street you live, I'm going to sing on the street you live, but with a new set of lyrics. So uh, that was the the idea originally was uh, to sort of launch my performing career. And I did do it for a couple of years and had enormous fun doing it. I'd especially, I was like Yul Brenner and Rex Harrison and that sort of thing. And I was young and nasty and, you know, fresh upstart. So, uh, but it quickly became obvious that the uh, the unique talent uh, that I had was to actually write and create the show and keep it ongoing. So I stepped back out of the show and now direct and write it, co-direct it with uh, Phil George, who does a wonderful job with some of the staging and uh, is, uh, you know, um, uh, comes up with some good ideas for me too. And, and I write it and uh, I come in and we put it together and, and there you have it. Now, you, you talk about being young and nasty and all that. That was 23 or so years ago. How do you keep the edge going all those years? How do you keep the show timely and edgy? Well, I think if we follow what's going on on Broadway, that will do it. Um, it does – I do feel that the tone changes from year to year. And, you know, we've had many different editions, and sometimes each edition will have a different feel to it. It'll be darker or it'll be funnier or it'll be sillier looking or smarter looking. Is it because of the material that's available or because of you? That's the, No, yeah, I think mood, it's the material you're in. I think it's – well, probably both, but mostly because of what's playing on Broadway. And I'm sort of doing the same treatment uh, – uh, I'd like to think that I've improved in some way, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure I've improved in some way and not as good in other ways. But uh, but the show basically, the uh, sort of uh, framework of the show stays the same. And it's what goes on Broadway or what's happening on Broadway that gives it its edge, hopefully. Who are you writing for? Because after all this time, certainly there are repeat visitors, there are tourists who may happen upon it. But you're here, you're of the theater, you're seeing all of the new shows. And the night John and I saw it last week, the theater was filled with people from the theater community. Are you writing for the insiders? Or are you writing for the general public? Well, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. My first thought when you said that was, well, I'm writing for myself. I mean, That's sort what of the critics <laughs> say when you ask them about how they write reviews. I, I guess I'm just writing what I think. Oh, I mean, I'm trying to be funny, though. I'm not. I'm not just trying to off a valid critique of a show. I'm also trying to make a joke. I've exaggerated many aspects of what's going on in a show. But now I'm writing for myself, and, and I'm grateful that a lot of uh, tourists enjoy the show and uh, and a lot of people in the theater community also enjoy the show. It, it's it, The show's sort of mixed. I mean, there are, you, you know, if you're in theater, you get it on different levels. If you're not in theater, if you're a tourist, you get it on another set of levels. And I think it, uh, it's blessed that it works that way. Also, I do try to be self-explanatory with the numbers so that pretty much any American can get it, I believe, if you just listen to what we're saying. Before we went on the air, you commented about a particular show coming up this season, which I'll leave nameless, which you said, that sounds like a really bad idea. <laughs> so what is your process? Are you sitting there with your knives sharpened saying, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on this one? How do you how do you approach a new show? And when I say a new show, a new Broadway show to look at it for whether it's going to create fodder for Forbidden Broadway. Well, no, I never think, oh, I can't wait to get my hands on that. Matter of fact, I don't I don't ever go into a show thinking, oh, what am I going to do with this? I go to a show as a spectator and see what they offer. Um, uh, I do have, I guess, some preconceived opinions on shows because I do like to think of myself as a writer, so sometimes when I think, well, how do I think they're going to write that particular show? And I think, well, that's a good idea for a show because it's a good story and it will sing well or 
that's a silly idea for sure because there's not much of a story or how are you going to put that on the stage, what it's going to look like on the stage. Sometimes I've been surprised, but um, uh, usually I'm uh, you know, pretty good guess. Of course, how good a show is doesn't always mean it's going to make a good parody. For example, The Producers, I think, is a wonderful show. I mean, that's right up my alley, but that's almost impossible to spoof a spoof. and um, Well, it's basically a spoof in itself. Yeah, it, it's a, very much the same cut from the same cloth I've been brought to, or vice versa. So, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't always mean it's going to make a good spoof. Usually, the more serious a show is, the better parody it makes. Well, there are some shows that have not been, shall we say, very successful. Uh, one that just closed, Lennon, which you did a terrifically funny spoof of the show and of uh, Yoko Ono. There were other shows that were not terribly successful. You did not spoof. Why Why did you leave out certain shows and include others? For oh, well, that's easy. Well, uh, uh, let's compare it to a show like Sideshow, which was... Well, no, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was thinking Carmen, like, like Brooklyn, for example. Oh, Brooklyn. Yeah, um, no, that's a good, good example. Yeah, we'll because, go- well, when you're dealing with uh, something like Lennon, you're dealing with a songbook. Uh-huh. So people already know the music, and they already know uh, the, what the character's about. So it has uh, mass appeal, or at least people are informed about it. But when you're talking about Brooklyn, people don't know the score, people don't really know the story. So um, most people would sit there in the dark. Uh-huh. But if you're dealing with, uh, I mean, very often... A show that isn't well known or doesn't run very long, like a songbook show like Mamma Mia, is easier to get. Or a revival of a show that people already know the material, the story, or something that's already famous because it played in London, like Les Mis and Phantom were already well known by the time they made it over here. So while while Brooklyn may have been a good uh, parody because of the costumes, for example, had very interesting uh, costumes derived from street stuff, you know, mm-hmm. debris from the street. The average person wouldn't get it. They they wouldn't get the joke that you were spoofing that, I guess. I, I think so. What and, and also they have to – usually they have to see the show. Not always. Uh-huh. Uh, Lennon's a good uh, example. But usually the public has to see the show. And even if a show's a hit, it usually takes about six months before enough of our audience has seen the show to start spoofing it. Well, not to pick on Lennon, but Lennon, the Lennon spoof must have gone in fairly recently Yes. Uh, to the show. And, of course, now Lennon has closed – how quickly do you respond, not as the writer, but mm-hmm. as the director of the show, and say, well, is this going to hold up? Will we see Lennon coming out of the show quickly, or is it going to hang there for a while? Well, my guess is that it probably will. It's topical human. It probably will be dated in, in a while. Um, but, uh, you know, people are knowing we're, we're talking about it. You know, we have a handle on what it is. And uh, so probably for a couple of months, people will know what it is. I mean, it varies from show to show. Some shows we were able to spoof a long time after they closed, like uh, Thelody Ron Millie. Uh, I think because also some of the music was known, some of the music from the film, and also some 1920 songs were known, and people sort of had an idea what it was. And uh, so we were able to do that for, um, oh, gee, about uh, six months after it closed. Uh, But eventually the laughter stops, and when the laughter stops, you just pull the number and put something else new in. So it was six months after the show closed when you first spoofed it? It wasn't during. No, the, no, no, no. We were spoofing it while it was oh, running. While it was running, but you after the show closed, we were still doing the number. Yeah. So how how long do you, on average, leave a, a number in the show? Oh, it varies. I mean, it, it's wildly. I mean, it could be a couple of weeks. It could be a couple. It could be many, many years. Like I the uh, Annie did, number. Annie number, tomorrow, sure. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. you can do that forever. You yeah, know, it's uh-huh. just generally about. But how many Annie numbers do you have over the years? Because I remember seeing one. For, I guess it was the 20th anniversary Annie revival, which was very specific to some of what had been going on with that particular right. revival and the whole talent show competition. Mm-hmm. Do you find with these revivals that each time they come back, there's there's a different take on them? Oh, absolutely, yeah. A different, uh, revival of an old show. You, 
the take on it is what's uh, what's new. Uh, for example, uh, we all love Fiddle on the Roof. I think of it as one way, but this most recent revival had a certain slant to it, and we were able to spoof that. Well, and we should say you've you've already got Rosie O'Donnell material in the show even before right. she was actually quite on stage with it. Right now, of course, when she does it on stage in the reviews, and people talk about it, we may want to rethink that uh, parody to be specifically about what her performance is. Right now, we're, uh, what we're parroting is just the idea of her going into the show. So it, um, I, I'd say it, it varies from show to show. Uh, Annie, yeah, we've had many different versions, or we use her in different ways. And uh, there's always a, a way in Forbidden Broadway to take something that's uh, classic or old and juxtapose it with something new and get some laughs out of it, the way we did uh, Ethel Merman for many years with The Phantom of the Opera. And matter of fact, there's always a way to put Ethel Merman into the show. <laughs> into and, just about <laughs> anything. Right, yeah. Well, talking about uh, songs and shows going in and out of your show, uh, the CD of Special Victims Unit, the number eight of your CDs that are out, um, has a number of songs on it that are no longer in the show. You've taken them out since the CD was issued earlier this year. Right. We recorded it in January, and the show was uh, very up-to-date then. But uh, there's been remarkable uh, activity on Broadway in the last six months. So, um, you know, some of the classic numbers like uh, that worked well on that CD that are so funny, like Thurman Millie or Bernadette Peters and Gypsy, uh, you know, are now uh, out of the show because they're not topical. We've made room for all the new shows like Spam a lot and lighten the piazza, which is fun to spoof because again, it's a serious show. So it's yeah, shows I'd opened after the CD was recorded, obviously. Right, yeah, right. yeah. Let's let's play a song from the CD. From how about a show that uh, has been running and is popular and still in your your. Well, show? how about that fiddle on the roof uh, number? Because uh, that's had a nice long run. It was running then; it's still running now. We're still uh, making fun of it, and uh, everybody recognizes the music and. You well, can hear what I think they did wrong with this revival of Fiddler on the Roof. Well, there were two different uh, Fiddler numbers. One is Fiddler with No Jew. The other is Harvey Firestein as Tevye. Yeah, they, they sort of... Um, sort of I, I'd say Fiddler with one No Jew, the, fir- the first one. Okay. Actually, they go, they go into each other, so you'll get them all. Okay, great. Obviously, from Fiddler on the Roof, which is still running, <laughs> and Rosie O'Donnell has just joined it, and the number you do in the show is very funny with uh, the Rosie character worked into it now. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, we've we've updated a little bit by putting her in. Yeah, yeah, very timely. One of the elements of the show that I wanted to ask you about, because it's really quite extraordinary, and I, I hadn't been back to see it for a few years, is the costume design Isn't for remarkable? your show, yes. Forbidden Broadway. Alvin Colt, who is a legendary Broadway costume designer, including, I believe, the original Guys and Dolls, That's among right. others, you started this show on a shoestring. It got some notoriety. Where did you end up with, with Alvin Colt doing your little four-character off-Broadway yeah, parody? Yeah, Alvin's remarkable, and, and actually he's like at his peak now <laughs> more than ever. Uh, it, it, the show has changed. The, uh, the tone of the show changed. The shape of the show changed a little bit over the years. And initially we sort of just did it with uh, uh, basics and a few um, scarves and aprons and things like that. And uh, in uh, about 1990, Alvin came aboard. We uh, we shared the same lawyer, uh, brilliant lawyer, Mark Sendroff, who's our friend. And uh, and uh, Mark knew we were looking for uh, somebody new to help us with the costumes, and he recommended Alvin. And um, unfortunately, Alvin was not working a lot, which still baffles me because he's he's uh, so remarkably talented and uh, and very industrious and very with it. And uh, so he came on board with Forbidden Broadway. And, of course, his talent is so witty and so um, 
Uh, well, he understands the material. I think you don't understand any material he's doing. He's truly a writer's designer. He can look at a piece of material and go like, okay, I understand what the writer is going for here. And then he'll design for that. So over the years, he knows uh, we've become attuned what we're doing, and he knows exactly what we're going for Forbidden Broadway. And there's actually not much – there's a little discussion about what we, – we both know what each other needs at this point. And, uh, right, the costumes have become so successful in the show, and yet not – I don't ever feel that they step on the lyrics, which are the other element of the show. No, but they get their own laughs Yeah, sometimes. Oh, they do, yeah, and I certainly don't mind that. So over the years, we've expanded the costume parade, so it's quite elaborate at this point and, uh, and very fun. And I, I believe it adds to the show, does not detract from it. Alvin's remarkable. I mean, he started in – his first part of his show was On the Town with uh, Bernstein and Comden and Green. And then he worked right into the 40s, Guys and Dolls with Labner, and uh, did a lot of TV work. Uh, he um, he won a Tony for Roger Hammerstein's show that nobody remembers, Pipe Dream. Like, they're only flop. Matter of fact, that was the only Tony that show won. And um, he's been working uh, through the years, and he's uh, so amazing and very fast. I, I I don't know why they don't use him for more contemporary Broadway shows, because he absolutely could handle it. He could have done a magnificent job, something like the producers or... Thurman Miller or Scarlet Pimpernel or something like that that has a satirical edge to it. And he's he's just a joy to work with, a wonderful gentleman. And what about the people you put into the costumes? Namely, where do you come up with a cast that can spoof all of these different performers and all of these different shows? Well, we audition a lot of people, and it's a, it's an ongoing talent search, you know. Talk about uh, David O'Sullivan looking for Scarlett O'Hara for Gone with the Wind. I mean, we go but through a not, lot I mean, of people. You're writing the show all the time. Yeah. You're you're casting new people yes. in the show. It sounds like an ongoing. It doesn't. And sometimes people ask me, "Oh, Gerard, why haven't you ever written another musical?" Uh, I mean, I've written some other stuff, but I've never really bared down done that because it's an ongoing job. It always needs to be rewritten. And yes, the casting is a big job, and then teaching the people how to do it because it's not even the most talented ones. It takes a few months to acquire sort of uh, exactly how to approach this sort of material. And we need extremely uh, talented and versatile people, both musically and comedically. I mean, think of the all the different types of music they have to do in the show. If there's a revival, they have to do the Roger Hammerstein style or a Learn and Low style. If there's a uh, something like Rent, they have to be able to do the rock thing. And they have to be able to do Merm, and they have to be able to do Adina Menzel, all, you know, from Wicked, the new stars, the old stars. And it's, it's, uh, it's quite... Uh, um, demanding on them, and uh, when we find good talent, it really clicks and it really works. And uh, I think, and that's the other reason. That's why I invented the show to show off the talent of my friends, and I hope to continue to do that for young people. You've got some pretty good alumni coming out of the talent. Jason Alexander comes that's right. to mind. Yes. Uh, Brad Oscar is currently starring. In Brad the did a long time, right? Yeah. <laughs> who, right. who else? D. Hody, uh-huh. uh, Chloe Webb uh, made a lot of films. She was in the original show with me, and she's gone on to make a lot of films. And um, we've had uh, – wait a minute. Let me think now. We, well, I mean also people like Brian Batt who have gone on to Saturday Night Fever and Scarlet Pimpernel. And, I mean actually he was one of the best people we've ever had on the show. And Christine Petty sort of made a name for herself in our show and doing other shows. Uh, Danny Gerwin has made a good name for himself on Broadway after doing our show. We've had some very talented people. And we knew uh, they were going to be stars. Right now we have Megan Lewis. And we found her at an open call. We auditioned about 200 people. And we found two people at the open call that we thought were good. And, um, uh, you know, Craig Laurie, who's working for us now, and Megan. And we put Megan into the show first as a standby. Then Christine was going on, but she had uh, uh, laryngitis, not a serious case, just couldn't shake it. 
So we actually had to replace Christine with Megan for a while. And Christine came back later, of course, and did a wonderful job. But Megan uh, was, uh, you know, we taught her the show in like a week. Mm-hmm. And she went on and did it for the critics. And now she's in the show. And she's one of our best girls. She's doing a great job. Right. She does have one number that, where she's Christina Applegate. That's right. Yeah, she, yeah, that's, the, that's, yeah. Yeah. she comes out in, the, in the, the blonde curly wig and the red dress and does the falling off the lamppost routine so well. Right. Well, and Megan's such a wonderful natural comedian that she can pull that off. Yeah. Also, Ron Bomer that is in this uh, version that you, you're hearing, uh, he was in our show in 1987 when he was a young man. Because, you know, there's sort of like a, a little bit older leading man track and then there's a more young male ingenue track. And uh, Ron originally was in sort of the younger track. And uh, and then he went on to do many, many shows, uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, The Thing About Men, and I used to see him around. He was always working, had lots of CDs out, and a beautiful, beautiful voice. And he would say to me, hey, Gerard, I want to come back to the show sometime. And I'd say, oh, okay, all right, you know, and I never think anything of it. Finally, uh, last year, we did have an opening, and I asked Ron if he wanted to come back, and he did. And he came back more as the other track, more of a, a full-bodied uh, leading man. And uh, and he was tremendous. He's just wonderful in the show. Are you ever scared or worried that perhaps somebody from Saturday Night Live will be sitting in the audience, see one of your people, say, "Oh, that Megan Lewis. I think I'll hire her away to do." Oh, I wish. <laughs> oh, oh my God, that's what I want. I want the. But then she wouldn't. Oh, be Michael, able to do Michael your McGraw show. was not the one that did our show uh-huh. for many years, both in Boston and here, and now he's in. He got Tony and she spam a lot. Yeah. So so you can see the uh, the type of talent we've had, and his wife Tony DeBono was one of the best people we have too, and. Um, uh, you know, no, I hope that uh, somebody from Saturday Night Live or – I mean, some mm-hmm. of these people should have their own TV show. Like, oh, my God, Jason Graw, who did uh, Forbidden Broadway in Los Angeles for us and also did Forbidden Hollywood. And I thought, why, why – this guy really deserves his own TV series, you know. So I hope something like that happens for them. Let's play another song from the CD. You've made several mentions thus far of Thoroughly Modern Millie. Oh, yes, that, that you was removed fun. from the show. Uh, eventually we removed yeah, it. We yeah. kept it a long time. Uh-huh. I think it had a longer run in Forbidden Broadway than it did – on Broadway, but it was very fun to spoof. You know, people recognize the song from the Julie Andrews movie, and uh, I felt it was a, a bit of a misguided production, although it had some nice things about it. But, well, I explained it all in the song, and it was fun to do, and uh, here we have Megan doing the song. Number, of course, spoofing thoroughly modern Millie, talking with Gerard Alessandrini, who is the creator, writer, and director of 23 years' worth of Forbidden Broadways. Um, you mentioned Forbidden Broadways elsewhere. Where else have companies been playing? Oh, we've done it successfully. Well, all over the country. You know, it's funny. People would say, like, oh, but do they get it outside of New York or do average people get it? And the truth is they absolutely do. Like I said, I believe a lot of them are self-explanatory. And we've done it in all the major cities in this country from uh, Kansas City, Boston, Washington, uh, Los Angeles. We've been there successfully many times. We hope to go back again. You know, we can do about a nice six to nine month run in Los Angeles. Uh, London, we've had a lot of success there, and hopefully we'll be back there sometime. Uh, the closer that London and New York get to uh, the uh, ABCs or what's playing, which is pretty close right now, the more um, Londoners get the show. Do you, do you, do you tailor the uh, the show for the city you're in, specifically London? Do you put more British Appeal shows into it, let's say? Uh, well, what's, what's playing there? You know what they've got? I mean, uh, last time we were in London, it was pretty easy because most of the shows that were playing there were playing here. Uh, so it was very close to the New York show. But you don't just take the New York show and transfer it to London. You you write new material for the London audience? Not, not Or is it pretty much a Really. Uh, I mean, you know, some of the nomenclature you have to change. It's just, just the wordage, uh-huh. you know, is uh, sometimes they don't understand, oh, it's a high school, you know. Uh, so we changed some of that. Uh, 
we'll make it match sort of what's playing in London, but it's still about Broadway. I mean, London's one of the cities we had to change it the least. Sometimes when we go to, let's say if we go to San Antonio or, um, you know, Denver or something like that, we make it a, more of a general show, more of the numbers like from Annie, Fiddle on the Roof, mm-hmm. Phantom of the Opera, keep, keeping well, the it. The shows that have toured probably. Toured, right, exactly. The, tour, the city, the shows that have been through that city recently. Uh, so those uh, those shows will be geared for that. But I don't actually rewrite it a lot. Maybe, maybe I'll just write a new number for fun or something. Actually, when we did it, last time we did it in London, uh, we needed one more girl solo, so I wrote a Sarah Brightman parody. And it was, you know, um, time to time, time to say goodbye is a real song. And I made it, time I said goodbye. And I wrote it for the girl in London. And we they said, oh, no, don't bother, don't bother. It's not funny, you know. So we didn't we didn't do it. And then the next production we did in the United States, I did it, and it brought the house down. And now it's one of our uh, regular numbers in Forbidden Broad Matter. People are sick of it. We've done it so much, but every time we do it, the audience just goes crazy and laughs. Everybody knows her or has an opinion on her. We seem to be talking around it, and you're talking with about you're, you're demonstrating the enormous facility you have for writing new material because you're constantly doing so. But what is your process? How do you attack a show? A new show is announced, a new show goes into previews, or a new show opens. What's what's your process? Well, the parody is really about how the public perceives the show. It's really less about what I think of it. Uh, I mean, that does come in it, um, into the picture. It's hard not to uh, sometimes put your opinion in. But it's more about what people around town are saying. That's why there's no sense seeing a show on an opening night, usually, and going home and writing a parody the next day because it won't. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. It doesn't mean anything, as <laughs> Angela Cartwright said in The Sound of Music. So it's you know people have to see it, talk about it over breakfast. You have to talk to theater people what they think. You have to hear what the general public has to think. You have to see what the ads are like. You know, are they struggling? Or are they a big hit? Is it hard to get a ticket? Is it? Are they giving tickets away? Is the star showing up? You know, have to wait and find out what the general gossip is about the show. And then I start uh, approaching it. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I worry a lot about what to do. Like uh, Light in the Piazza, it came out very funny, I think. Uh, thankfully, because it's a serious show and... and uh, you know, I went to see the show, and I just enjoyed it very much and was very swept up into it and uh, really admired the writing and the storytelling. And then uh, to do the parody, about a few months later, I thought, okay, now we have to do a parody of it. It's a big hit. It's running. Uh, I worried a lot, you know, and uh, we tried a lot of different angles before we came up with one that we thought worked. And actually, we tried out a couple of versions in front of the audience and uh, saw what the audience laughed at. You know, in this one, uh, they were laughing more at the young lovers I had more of Vicky Clark in it, uh, and the audience was—they were listening, but they were clearly more focused on the young lovers. So we put that duet in for them, and cut some of Victoria Clark spoof. And uh, you can so the audience will sort of guide you what they think is mm-hmm. funny about the show. So you you have to do a lot of research. You must go to a lot of shows. I do. I go to the show. Sometimes I go back once or twice and try to get a hold of um, the music and the CD and. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes actually sit down and, like, learn the whole thing, you know, like, memorize it so I can walk around trying to fit the, you know, the lyrics to the pre-existing music. Sometimes it's difficult, like Light in the Piazza, or sometimes it's remote to me. If it's a rock musical, sometimes I always don't, uh, you know, rock music doesn't come easier into my mind as much as show music does. It's actually easy for me to do, like, a, a Learner and Low song or a Stephen Sondheim 
song even, even though I can't do it as, as tight as him, than it is to do uh, sometimes when I hear a rock song and I go like, well, where's the form? I can't hear where the rhymes are. I don't know. What's the A? What's the bridge? You know, it's all over the place. So we sort of have to clean it up and uh, translate it. So when you show up at the theater, are you recognized to the box office people, the usher, say, oh, here comes that guy again. He's going to do a parody of this show. I've or? never had that problem. No, no one's ever recognized no. you. I don't think so. Kind of like, well, like, I, I go in disguise. Like, say, I had a beard last week, this week, I <laughs> blonde one week, dark hair the next week. So they never know. Uh, okay. But at this point, <laughs> it's so accepted. Do you get calls? I mean, there, there are some shows that feel they could use the boost of having you parody them. Do oh, you no, I don't. get invited? No, I, I don't. First of all, I don't think they think that being parodied on Fit Party is a way to boost their box. Obviously, that's the last. <laughs> you know, I think they think about extra flyers before they think about that. Um, uh, will I get invited? Well, I mean, uh, if they have a tremendously good sense of humor, I mean, uh, Jeff Marks and Bobby Lopez wanted to be spoofed. Avenue uh, Q. Avenue Q, you know. And uh, that was hard because, you know, they themselves are a comedy, so. How do you spoof a comedy? Well, well there are different ways to do it. I mean, uh, again, it's, it's you know, I mean, what's funny about that show is that it's a, it's basically using puppets, and it's uh, and it won Best Musical. That's kind of a funny idea in itself. Well, and, and also as part of a trend of Well, there was Lion King as well, but right, you found the, the well, trend. Well, there was this whole trend of, and, and right. Little Shop of Horror was using puppets, yeah. and there were many other shows that were actually had some kind of puppetry in them. Oh, there's point. the pigeons and the producers. It's just become That's a big right. trend. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you, do you get cooperation from the shows themselves, from the composers of the music? Do they... Sometimes. The one that's a good... Uh, Stephen Sondheim is a very good sport. Maury Esten. Um, if, if I need the music, they'll, they'll get, get it to me. Uh, like I said, Jeff Marks and Bobby Lopez. Uh, uh, some of them are. Some, uh, nobody's given me a problem uh, about it. You know, I mean, people... I think people like to think that I have had a problem, but I... Really haven't. You know who has a tremendous sense of humor, actually, is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, I've talked to him, and he thinks Forbidden Body's a hoot. And uh, I think people like to think, oh, he doesn't like Forbidden Body because it says things about him. But, he, you know, I think the only thing he doesn't like about Forbidden Body when it isn't funny, you know. If it's funny, I think he's fine with it. So he's got a great sense of humor. Let's let's play another song. Uh, let's Not from the current album, one of the, the older albums. Before we went on, you were talking about Ragtime. Oh, let's talk about Ragtime. Ragtime... Uh, sometimes it's easier to spoof a show I like because it's fun to listen to the music and sort of research it. And Ragtime is a good example of that. Ragtime, you know, and Ragtime is a very, it's it's a historic show because it's the last big, real, huge Broadway musical with an original story, original score. And um, Steve, who wrote the music, actually used to play as one of the pianists in Forbidden Broadway back in the early 90s. So... So so I think, Stephen Flaherty? Yes. Yeah, so I think he was uh, he was thrilled that Forbidden Broadway uh, was attacking his material. I think they were thrilled until they saw it. I think they maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it, I'm sure. I'm sure it's hard to uh, you know even if you love Forbidden Broadway, you know it's it's hard to be parodied because we really went after Ragtime and there was a lot of fun things to go after because it's a very, again it was a very serious show, successfully serious, and I just loved it. It was great fun to play with it and. Uh, uh, the original parody era went on for like hours, and uh, we cut it down to about. Eight. Matter of fact, I was just telling somebody I wish the version that you'll hear on the radio is actually a little trimmed from what we did in the show. And I now that it's done, it's in the past and it's historic as a forbidden Broadway number. I wish we hadn't trimmed it. I wish we would left it intact. But here's uh, what we recorded of Ragtime, a version of Ragtime with the Stephen Flaherty music pretty much intact, but Lynn Aaron's lyrics replaced by your own Gerard Alessandri. Right, right. Well, you know, the parody lyrics, so I'm actually, I actually do use the lyrics yes. in, part. in part. I mean, very often I'll use the same rhymes they're using. Right. As a matter of fact, 
as a parodyist, I love to get as close to the original lyric as you can and sort of twist it inside out, change a few words to give it a completely different meaning. And and I wonder if Steve would uh, say the music. I mean, Stephen Schwartz was at the show the other night in The Wicked, and he's a character in the uh, It Sucks to Me Me number, but we also do a parody of Wicked. And I didn't apologize to him for the character in Sucks to Me. I apologized to him for the chop work that I did on his music for Wicked. So in order to get it into a small segment like we did for Ragtime with Steve's music or Wicked, I have to really cut it down. And, you know, like It's like a collage. Take two bars from here and three bars from here and then 16 bars from here. And I just want the composers must be appalled when they hear the way we've chopped it up. How about the staging with uh, Alphabet not rising high above the stage but climbing a stepladder or something? Well, you know, we do the best we can. If it's Broadway, that's all we had. It was a milk carton, actually. But. Well, on that note, Gerard, uh, are you thinking about your next edition of Forbidden Broadway? If so, what shows? Well, I'm thinking about what's coming up this season. And, yeah. uh, of course, Sweeney Todd, we mentioned, right. with uh, right. a great revival of that. Uh, that's Stephen Sondheim's masterpiece. And... Uh, Patty Lapone, I just oh, I had the strangest dream the other night. I, I have to tell you, can I tell you this? Do mm-hmm. tell. I, it was you know sometimes you have a dream and it's realer than other times. I had a dream that we needed to replace one of the girls in the show, and Patty Lapone came in into Forbidden Broadway, and and she was doing Forbidden Broadway, and I was rehearsing her in Forbidden Broadway, teaching her all the Forbidden. This is how you do Merman, and this is how you do Julie Andrews. Then we got to the Patty Lapone number. And she's doing the Patty Lapone number of herself. And I'm saying, no, 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 Patty. That's not how you do Patty Lapone. <laughs> and she says, well, how do I do Patty Lapone? And I said, well, I'll give you some of your records so you can look home and take them and listen. <laughs> well, that shows you've been doing this show a long, <laughs> long time. And then she's asking me, like, well, what does this mean, this line here? And I'm like yelling at her, come on, Patty, you can do it better. And what kind of what does that mean, that dream? <laughs> I don't know. That would be fun to have the stars come back and do a parody of themselves as a benefit or something. Get them to actually do that. <laughs> Those yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People have talked about it. Funny. I don't know if that would, ever would happen. I'd love to see uh, Cheetah Rivera do the uh, Cheetah Rita number, but I think that <laughs> Well, on the, on the premise of maybe that'll someday happen, Gerard Alessandrini, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Thank Center. You, Thank you, Howard. Thanks for being here, Gerard. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the media and education work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.